Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. The views, information, or opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals. This content is not intended to malign or disparage any organization, group, or individual. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms and trials of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter, currently a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles. Previously, I was a prosecutor with the L.A. District Attorney's Office for close to a decade. We're recording this on Wednesday, October 22nd, 2021. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Mark Garagos, renowned trial lawyer and reviled scourge of the courtroom or greatest of all time, depending on who you ask. You may not recognize his name, though many of you do, but you certainly recognize some of his clients, who include entertainers Michael Jackson and Chris Brown, convicted notorious wife killer Scott Peterson, and a litany of clients making headlines for decades. But what you may be less aware of is his other work, say on behalf of heirs of the victims of the Armenian Genocide, or his success in getting a family restitution after their teen daughter died when an insurance company denied her liver transplant. Mark also hosts the podcast Reasonable Doubt with actor, comedian, podcast host extraordinaire, Adam Carolla. Because Mark has such a uh, large, has left such a large imprint on the legal community, we've asked him to give, come in and give us uh, a retrospective, as it were, of his career. So Wink, welcome, Mark. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, my mother was still alive. She would have loved to have heard that. And she actually may have believed half of it. So. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, absolutely. You, know, you, you didn't mention the firm you're with. You're with one of my buddies. Uh, oh, yeah. Matt, uh, uh, Worksman, Jackson and Quinn here in Los Angeles. Yeah. So Mark Worksman, who is your fearless leader, and I tried not once, but twice in federal court back in the 90s, the original um, so-called Armenian, um, that back then you could say Armenian mafia. And one of my favorite lines, Mark, during the closing, I'll get to in a second, but uh, Mark always kids me because during the bail hearing, the then prosecutor for the uh, government, for the U.S. Attorney's Office, was accusing my client of being number two in the Armenian Mafia, blah, 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 on a bail hearing. And I remember my worksman kids me all the time saying, because I piped up and I said, you know, Judge, this is the fourth bail hearing I've done in the last five years where I'm representing number two. I really want the number one guy because I can charge a lot more if I have <laughs> And I'll never forget, it was in front of uh, District Court Judge Paez, who's now a Ninth Circuit Court of Circuit Court Judge. He, at one point, worksman during the closing was hilarious and said something about the gun. It was a gun case, Hobbs Act case, and pulled the gun up and um, Judge Paez told him to sit down, basically. And then when the jury went out, said to worksman, you've been you've been in the state court too much. <laughs> <laughs> and your funny. other your other uh partner is alan jackson yes sir is like me is married to a kasabian woman um also alan when he was a prosecutor in the office uh was up uh, we were against each other in what was called the japanese oj case which was the gentleman mura whose wife died when he was visiting here in los angeles in the 80s she was murdered uh, he went back to Japan. He was acquitted of the murder. They tried him right. in Japan for a murder that took place in Los Angeles. Then 
he he's dead now so and you'll understand why he apparently was at least according to the da's office back then when jackson was there was to some degree taunting the lada there was a warrant out for him but unbeknownst to him guam is a u.s territory and he stepped foot in guam and was promptly arrested and i give alan credit because alan i did a double jeopardy motion and while he was in guam and the judge granted on the basis that he was acquitted back then there was a code section in california if you're acquitted in another jurisdiction it's double jeopardy in california so the judge granted the motion on the murder alan smart ass that he is did filed a conspiracy to commit murder which the judge <laughs> said okay i need i need i'm gonna have to have an evidentiary hearing they got poor Mr. Mura here, and he literally was dead within 24 hours in the LAPD station while while in their custody. I never got to see him because I was in Europe, and uh, it was a tragedy because I always thought we could have had him uh, acquitted here as well, or at least got it dismissed. Yeah. So we got quite an illustrious firm over there. Yeah, thank you very much. And that was one of those cases where it was the suicide took place in between the guard checking on the cell and everybody wondered how something like this could have taken place in such such a high profile case i don't know if a lot of folks remember that case but i remember that case really well because you may not remember this but that was actually the first time we met because i was alan's law clerk in the da's office at the time working on that case i remember well i think it was out of department 100 before we got i think it was at 100 because um, the judge was out of Torrance or South Bay and we were bouncing back and forth. And I remember you were a young clerk. Um, it's amazing how many veteran prosecutors started off as young clerks on some case that I had. You were, right. you were right. one of them. And Alan is now representing uh, Harvey Weinstein and, That's right. um, in Los Angeles. And um, Harvey had called me and I said very nice things about Alan. Contrary to what Alan said in the LA Times, that's a whole different story. <laughs> I'm going to plead the fifth on that. Yeah, I'll exactly. let you take it up with him. <laughs> For those who are watching, there's a lot of inside baseball here. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. Well, kick us off and tell tell folks how you got started. Was it was it always something like criminal defense that you wanted to get involved in? You know, it's interesting because my father in the uh, I always kid or I did kid him when he was alive. He um, the he got sworn in as a deputy DA in the L.A. County DA's office, January 57. And I was born in October 57. I always kid I was his, you know, uh, prosecutorial spawn. Um, <laughs> he then was in the DA's office up until uh, late 60, maybe 1970. And I always remember going, I used to go to court with him. And at one point he was always a hard charging homicide prosecutor. It's kind of paved the way for me in the sense that a lot of guys who had tried cases against him um, gave me a wide berth because I was Paul's son. But I remember at age 12 or 13, I had gone to Glendale court. He had just finished like some back-to-back -back death penalty cases. And he was kind of on rest and recreation, you know, when they rotate you, head of the then Glendale court. And I watched him in a courtroom in the courthouse as a prosecutor sent, sent, asking a judge to sentence a kid who looked like he was the same age as me, but obviously must have been 18 to 18 months in state prison for being in a room where marijuana was smoked. Wow. And I could not get my head around it. I mean, I never, I just, I didn't understand. How could you just be in a room, not doing anything affirmative and that your whole life is ruined, you're going to prison. So he and I on the way home, we talked about it. And shortly thereafter, he retired. For 40 years, I told that story. And you know, how I had changed the arc of his career, that, and I didn't want to be a prosecutor because I couldn't do that. And I went into criminal defense with him. And then, you know, about 10 years ago, my mother heard me tell this story and she pulls me aside. She goes, oh, that's, that's so cute. I don't want to disabuse you of that. But the real reason he left is because we have three boys and you guys were all going into high school and we couldn't pay for college on 17 grand a year that the DA's office was paying. So you're like, mom, you're ruining oh. one of my great stories here. Yeah, exactly what I told her. And she's now passed on. So I, I'm at least honoring her legacy. Yeah, the um, 
so I went to work with um, the old man. I had I, back then I was offered a job in the DA's office, but I I I never felt like I could prosecute. I there used to be a judge in L.A. Um, who was an ex kind of a notorious LAPD on the big hat squad back in the 40s. And his name was Red Stromwall. In fact, where I'm sitting right now, he lived um, just right up the street, about six houses up the street from me. Um, uh, and he was a legendary cop and a very well-renowned um, judge in the Superior Court now in CCB. And Red used to say, when you would go in there as a criminal defense lawyer, he, he would say, I never sentence anybody to custody for something I can see I'm doing myself. And so it was a great place to be. Yeah. And I kind of had that. It wasn't the red Stromwall theory. Then I later kind of backfilled it. But I always had that feeling that there were a lot of cases like to be in a room where a marijuana was smoked, other kinds of cases where I just couldn't quite understand how you prosecuted somebody like that, how you could divorce yourself from the humanity. Right. Of, I just always felt like, and I think part of it's my Armenian heritage. I always felt like I identified more with the underdog than the authority figures. So I went into, I turned down Steve Cooley's offer. Steve was not the DA then, but he was a hiring deputy and he offered to hire me. And I thought about it and then passed and went into practice with the old man. And back then was kind of the heyday for criminal defense because you could do court appointments. And in the 80s, you could just go down to the third floor of the criminal courts building and you'd ask judges to appoint you and they would appoint you on felony, serious felony cases. Now, how else are you going to get felony cases straight out of law school? Nobody's going to hire you. They certainly are. Right. You know, but I I just took every court appointment I could. And I did it for years and tried the cases, did the prelims until one day I remember I got a check from the county and it had been issued by Judge Mayerson, who I later was very fond of. And Judge, he passed away recently, and he's a great man on the Hall of um, uh, Fame on the side of the Criminal Courts Building. Mayerson, for a two-day prelim, had paid me 250 bucks. And I went into my father's office. And I said, you know, if somebody came in here and said, we're going to pay you 250, you're going to go to work for two days. And I'm uh, and this is what would you do it? And he said no. And I said, yeah, I'm not anymore. So I stopped doing 987 work, actually developed a, a pretty good practice, um, starting with state court work and then worked my way into doing serious federal felonies. And then, you know, I, I've told this before, the case that really changed the arc of my career was the then erstwhile partner of Bill Clinton, uh, President Clinton and Hillary Clinton, Susan McDougall. Yeah. And Susan, before she became kind of a iconic figure for not refusing to testify uh, in front of Ken Starr's grand jury down in Little Rock, she had been extradited, for lack of a better term, to California to stand trial on an embezzlement case where the prosecutor was the late, great Jeff Simo um, in Santa Monica. And it was one of the last uh, cases that Les Light uh, tried as a Santa Monica judge. When I first got that trial, that that case, the way I got it, um, Susan, when she was brought here, was put in the old Sybil Brand jail. Sybil Brand was a very famous philanthropist in LA. They named this godforsaken woman's jail up on the hill by Cal State LA after her. I don't know, hardly a fitting legacy for Sybil Brand, but <laughs> it was a hellhole back in the 90s. My theory always was that the then independent counsel, Ken Starr, wanted her to be there. They put her on murderer's row. Literally, she was in K-10 status at wow. Sybil Brand with four other women charged with murder. Well, lo and behold, out of those four women, I represented all four. It's the only time before or since that I've had four women at the same time charged with murder that I've represented. And they told her, you ought to hire Mark. So I went down, I saw her. Um, I thought we hit it off. She hired me. I later learned that she didn't hire me because of my brilliance or charisma or sense of humor. She liked my shoes. So to young lawyers, I would say, watch the shoes you're wearing. Make sure, make sure the yeah. shoes are polished before you go visit a potential well, client. Was, exactly. And so I, that was a, I took the case pro bono and I, because I looked at the police reports and I thought, you know, this is kind of a case. 
was the embezzlement. Back then, it wasn't the McDougal case. It was the Zubin Mehta case, who was the world famous orchestra conductor. Susan had worked for Nancy Mehta, who was kind of a B actress, B level actress. Um, and later, when Zubin had done an audit of his books, he saw how much Nancy was spending. Nancy, my theory was, had laid it off on, blamed it on Susan. I thought I could get rid of the case. Uh, I figured I'd call up Simo and we'd work out some misdemeanor deal and be done with it. Fifteen weeks later, in Santa Monica, commuting from La Cunada or Pasadena, uh, she was acquitted of all wow. charges. But uh, not. by the way, did I mention I wasn't paid a dime? I was I, just going to get into that. So did you w- did you realize kind of the profile of the case at the time and thought, I just got to take this? No, we we did not. That's why I said people knew it as the Zubin Mehta case. Susan had not reached that kind of, you know, there's an iconic picture of her in a mini skirt, gray mini skirt, I think, and um, uh, being shackled and walked out of the Little Rock courthouse. Um, but that had really not permeated the West Coast in any way, shape or form. I took that case while that case was pending in Santa Monica all of the Ken Starr independent counsel, Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky, all of that stuff bubbled up and and became a phenom. That was the first case I ever had where every day there were people in the courtroom, cameras outside, kind of inundated. It was like nothing I had ever seen. When she was acquitted, you know, it's every kind of young lawyer's dream. You're in your 30s, your front page LA Times, front page New York Times. Sure. Well, I thought I was going to bask in that. Um, they promptly indicted her and dragged her back to Little Rock, Arkansas. And I figured in for a dime, in for no dollars. I went back with her five months later in federal court, and we tried her federal obstruction and, and contempt case. Um, and I tell this story also for anybody uh, I always maintain that jury selection is the most important part of the case. I had figured out that Susan was quite a polarizing figure, obviously, and it broke down basically along Democrat versus Republican lines. That the Democrats thought she was a heroine, the Republicans thought she was sleeping with Bill Clinton, or that she had been paid off by Hillary Clinton. I mean, right. it really kind of broke, broke down. So we had. I don't know if I mentioned this, zero money. But my co-counsel- <laughs> I'm keeping track. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, my co-counsel had the smart idea. Let's check the voter registration rolls when we get the jury list in Arkansas. Clever. Now, mind you, I later learned that the independent counsel had spent, I don't know, a hundred and some odd thousand dollars on jury consultants. So they had the full repertoire of that going behind them. We didn't, but we got the uh, jury rolls. I was able to seat a jury that ultimately had seven Democrats, five Republicans and a 12 person jury that actually deliberated. And um, luckily for me, the Office of Independent Counsel, I think made the misstep of not just going to trial on the criminal contempts because she was given immunity, put in front of the grand jury. She said, I'm not gonna testify. That would have been a pretty easy case for them to have proven. but. They they went overboard, as a lot of prosecutors do, and added the obstruction of justice. That gave us kind of a pathway to argue the intent of hers and whether it was a legitimate investigation under the jury uh, instruction. And the, the judge, the late uh, George Howard, agreed uh, in terms of that. And so we were able to get her acquitted on the obstruction, get all kinds of evidence in as to the legitimacy of the investigation. In fact, the first witness I called for the defense was Hickman Ewing, who was the head of the Little Rock, Arkansas Office of Independent Counsel. And I put him on the witness stand and promptly got him to say, I don't remember 43 times, and then admit that that Hillary Clinton, the reason he had a draft indictment of Hillary Clinton is because she kept saying she couldn't remember in front of her grand jury. So. The they hung on the criminal contempt. Can you guess the split? Seven to five. Bingo, you got it. Seven <laughs> to five. And then Susan wanted to kill me because as we went out on the courthouse steps, 
one of the reporters that was throwing a reporters back there in Little Rock said, do you think Ken Starr will retry this, the, the case? Because it was declared a mistrial. And I said, he doesn't have the balls. And Susan elbowed me as sharp. I think she broke a rib on <laughs> Calm down. <clears throat> but he never did retry it. Wow. And, and so that kind of propelled the career into a different I was going to say, so you go from hustling up whatever cases you can find, seeing if judges will hand it over to you on the, the, the third floor of, a, of CCB to now all of a sudden you're on the front page of newspapers and it's being reported nationwide. You're in the thick of it dealing with Ken Starr and, and the Clintons. What does that do to your career? What what happens it's, after uh, that? It supercharged the career. I mean, it, it, it got to the point, look, the old expression, you know, I... I was an overnight success. Yeah, I had worked uh, 17 years right. day, and night, uh, day and night and woke up after this kind of one year run of back to back acquittals, state and federal. And all of a sudden um, I was in demand. You know, it's funny because I don't know. Did you know Howard Weitzman? Howard was a legendary trial lawyer in uh, L.A. And Howard was, if you go back and look, the original lawyer for O.J., before Shapiro uh, subbed him out. And Howard, um, later, after OJ, maybe before OJ, actually it was before OJ, had represented John DeLorean. And there's a, oh, it's oh, yeah. a Netflix case, or a documentary on the case, framing John DeLorean. There's a couple of spots with him. But Howard did something that I always thought was really impressive. And this was back when I was in law school, becoming a first year lawyer. He represented DeLorean who was on tape um, uh, buying cocaine, basically, uh, to fund his DeLorean car company, right. the car that later became famous um, with the Michael J. Fox uh, movie, series of movies. And uh, Howard got him acquitted here in LA. Then they indicted DeLorean in Detroit. Most people don't remember this. And Howard got him acquitted there. And I used to tell Howard, you're my hero, back-to-back -back acquittals on cases nobody thought you could win. I always wanted to do that. And, you know, 15 years later, I was able to replicate Howard's success. Luckily for me, and I I just saw him at a wedding right before he passed, and, and we had a very good time and reminisced about it. But um, I was very fortunate, I have been very fortunate, to have a lot of fantastic mentors. And by the way, when it comes to um, being a lawyer, and I've discussed this with a lot of uh, trial lawyers, I'm uh, past president of national trial lawyers, and, uh, and I kind of see all the legends every year when we go there. LA has got some of the most iconic lawyers that have uh, over the last hundred years. I mean, you sure go back and take a look, you know, Clarence Darrow, um, was not only tried one of the most high profile cases in the 20s, he then was charged and got in a, a hung jury himself. And basically, they didn't retry Clarence Darrow here in LA. He, if he promised he'd never come back and try a case in California again, he said, good riddance, I'll never, I'll never come back. And um, there was just, uh, you know, there's, um, I could go on and on about the history of how many sure. spectacular uh, L.A. trial lawyers there have been. Sure. Well, I, I, I want to hop around to some of the cases that you've handled. And a lot of these are going to be things that folks have read in, in the news. The first kind of celebrity case that I remember you working on was was of Winona Ryder. Uh, she, Miss Ryder, now of Stranger uh, Stranger Things fame, was charged with stealing more than five thousand dollars from a Beverly Hills store in two thousand one. How, how did you get involved in that case initially? You know, it's interesting. I was telling the story the other day. It's funny you mentioned the. Uh, we're back in this post-Trump era where you know Gabby Petito, Brian Laundrie, uh, now Alex Baldwin, before the Trump presidency. Cable news was the repository for these kinds of stories, a la Winona Ryder, right. Gary Condit, all of those things. I, I used to say I was on speedy dial anytime there was a missing white woman and I would be <laughs> on cable news. And if she was pretty, it was back to back. Right. So what happened is if you go back to before 9-11, um, I had a client who was a then congressman named Gary Condit. And there was a woman uh, Adam Modesto, who was missing, um, and her name was Chandra Levy. And it then, 
you know, they came out supposedly that she was having an affair with the congressman. And he was in the crosshairs of the, not only the media, but also the, uh, the uh, authorities in Washington, D.C. And I was representing him. I was kind of defending him nightly. And then all of a sudden, 9-11 came along. And um, that took kind of a wall-to-wall of Gary Condit that was on the cable news every night and stopped it, appropriately so. What broke through, if you go back historically, what broke through 9-11 was the trial of the century, which was Winona that following December getting arrested for, so funny. for shoplifting, which shows you America and kind of our our dual, yeah. the dual collective uh, schizophrenia that we suffer from. Um, Winona, I got a call from the entertainment lawyer, which is often how it happens. and. We were off to the races and tried that case, and that went through. Uh, I, I can't tell you just how ridiculous that whole thing was. If that had been today, I doubt they even would have filed it because now right. post Prop 47 and right. the increased limits. I mean, and they never should have filed that as a felony, and it was just the whole thing. And they filed it as a burglary. I mean, the whole thing was just was nonsense, but I suppose in a way it served as a diversion from the rather serious and kind of almost cataclysmic nature of 9-11. So there was Winona and then that led, kind of my Modesto connection with Gary kind of led to Scott Peterson in 0304. Next on my list here, yeah. Well, and it's back in the news because uh, in the past year, the California Supreme Court ruled seven zip, nothing, that uh, to reverse the death penalty, number one. And right after that, within two months, they issued an order to show cause as to why the juror who was insinuated into that jury on day six or seven of deliberations, why she didn't poison the deliberations. And let me set that up. First of all, yeah, please. it was reversed uh, because the prosecutor and the judge used the wrong standard during jury selection. I was screaming bitterly that they they were doing, back then we did, and this was not the case in 2003, but we were doing what's called Hovi Vordire, which means you take each juror individually so that they would not pollute the jury pool. And you would ask them, you know, what's your feelings on the death penalty? And if they said, I'm pro-death penalty, the judge would then say, but, can you evaluate the evidence? If they said I'm against the death penalty, the judge excused them automatically. And I'd say, judge, you can't do that. You gotta ask him if they'll follow the law. He wouldn't do it. Wow. I kept telling him you're using the wrong standard. He excused hundreds of jurors based on that. And, and it, it, sorry to interrupt you, but in, explain to folks too why that's so important from a defense perspective, not just so much about the death penalty, but folks who are usually against the death penalty lean more kind of defense friendly and people who say, yeah, I'm in favor of it, lean more prosecution friendly. So it's not just about the death penalty, but about the kind of jurors you're getting overall. That's why you're brilliant, because this, <laughs> this is the second argument. I kept screaming, you are stacking the deck against right. us with these pro-death penalty jurors, and we can't get a fair trial because they're pro-prosecution. Every data set that I can show you proves that. You know it. That's one of the reasons that they've said you can't do this. He didn't do it. The Supreme California Supreme Court, while I applaud them for reversing it seven to nothing, um, I thought, based on the fact that the that the jury had been hand selected of pro death penalty jurors that infected the verdict as well sure they didn't agree with that but they did say that this particular juror who the media called strawberry shortcake because of her flaming red hair that she got in there she had an agenda and clearly she had not disclosed certain things on her juror questionnaire i had coined the term at the time stealth jurors because what i kept finding during jury selection i remember one woman in particular she looked good we put her up there she was a sophomore in college i asked her you know can you be fair she says you know mr gerrigus i didn't think i could 
But then I talked to my father last night and he said, you know, what if this was your brother? Would you be? And she said, I thought about it. And yes, I'm here and I can be fair. I like that answer. Because yeah. when people say, oh, no, I've never heard about the case. I can be fair. You know, they're lying through their teeth. But she looked good. So I went back to the hotel afterwards. And sure enough, somebody had faxed me. This is back when we're using faxes. Um, <laughs> a chat of her in some kind of a chat room saying, I really fooled that uh, defense wow. lawyer and I'm going to get on this jury and fry him, fry his client. Wow. So I showed her that when she came back, she kind of deteriorated. And sure enough, she had a restraining order in the clerk's office, which she had never disclosed. And I, wow. I had words with my investigators, but what can I do? Wow. Turns out strawberry shortcake had the same situation. She had a restraining order against a woman um, uh, regarding her uh, either then or current boyfriend, never disclosed it. Um, I think uh, it was not truthful in the questionnaire. And now, believe it or not, when the judge set it for hearing in um uh san mateo county she now through her lawyer has invoked the fifth so interesting unless, yeah unless the da gives her immunity i think yeah. her declaration gets struck and scott gets a new trial a new trial you think would be the remedy oh it has to be because wow. the supreme court order is an osc ray her prevarication for lack of a better term on the questionnaire She's now invoking the fifth. If she's not given immunity, the motion is to strike the declaration because you've got no uh, ability to cross-examine. She's also changed lawyers from who has filed the declaration. So that brings some questions up as to who assisted her in preparing the declaration originally that was attached to the DA's paperwork. So there's a hornet's nest here. Wow. That, was about to be that over. would be incredible. If he was granted a new trial, that would be talk about making news. That would be incredible. Yeah. And I think uh, my erstwhile partner, Pat, will probably try it if he tries it. I think I hope he learns or benefits from our mistake last time. I would have it televised in the courtroom because I think the biggest mistake I made on that case the first time was um, having people who were 3,000 miles away commenting on the case when they weren't in the courtroom and couldn't see what was happening. Because that, that that case was a complete collapse of the prosecutorial evidence. And um, and people just wanted, I mean, all you have to do is call up some of the, when the verdict was announced, it was the, a couple thousand people around the courthouse cheering. I yeah. remember on the front page of the San Mateo Daily News or whatever you call it, somebody was saying, this is better than the birth of my baby. I mean, wow. Yeah, that, that was something I wanted to ask you, too, because the, the cases we've talked about before now, I mean, there's a difference between handling a case that's high profile, handling a case that's involving a celebrity, and then handling a case like Scott Peterson. I mean, he was so reviled. I mean, people looked at and, and, and understandably so people looked at this crime, uh, how heinous it was, and, you know, it's involving an unborn child and everything else. And then his attempt to flee and all of that. Um, and hand and so you know put that all those other kind of celebrity high profile cases comparing that to somebody like this the question i get all the time and i'm sure you get is how how do you represent someone like this and how how did that affect the the media uh, spectacle around it and your the way that you handled it well the, there's a fundamental difference and you've kind of encapsulated it between the famous right. who get a presumption of innocence and the infamous who are, no, are notorious and do not. Yes. And when you do, when you're, and I'll give you an example. I mean, at the same time I was representing Scott, I was representing Michael Jackson. Right. Now, when it was announced that I'm representing Michael Jackson, our website was inundated. Over 500,000 hits went down and it was all well-wishers from around the world telling wow. me, you know, blah, blah, blah. When it was announced I was representing Scott, we also got inundated and the website went down, but most of the people were praying that I got cancer. So it shows you <laughs> that as a lawyer, there's a fundamental difference and people, people tend to um, associate the lawyer with the client. Yeah. Um, and back then, I was a huge believer that you could 
that criminal defense was the most noble profession because you're up against the government. And, uh, you know, at a certain point, I had to make a choice between Michael and Scott. And to me, I always thought, I never thought Michael's case should have been brought. I thought it was a loser from the get-go. And um, the minute I found out that the purported victim um, or complaining witness, as I like to call them, had hired the same lawyer as the person who had gotten the $20 million payout to, uh, 10 years before when Howard Re Weitzman represented Michael, um, I, I thought game over. I mean, I didn't see how they could ever overcome that if they're the prosecution, and they didn't. I, I ended up testifying not once but twice in that trial because I kept saying, this conspiracy is ludicrous that you're charging Michael Jackson with. I was the one who ordered the PIs to to investigate. I was the one who said, you got to separate from this family, blah. It wasn't Michael, he wasn't, uh, he was very naive and and uh, naive in the sense that he believed in the goodness of people. So I didn't, I was never worried about his case. I was extremely worried about Scott's because as you mentioned, um, Joellen Demetrius had helped me with jury selection and because we done, we were successful in gaining a change of venue. But be careful what for what you wish for. Right. I left Modesto and I went to San Mateo, which, you know, by all accounts, is probably the most prosecution-friendly jurisdiction anywhere. I wanted, you know, there, Scott did not have a constituency. You know, OJ had a constituency. Right. Winona has a constituency. Scott, I thought the closest thing to an, a, a constituency was Orange County. You know, because home of adulterous golfers. So. <laughs> That was a good place to be, and I, I forcefully made that argument. And the prosecutor, I knew his parents lived in Orange County. I said, "Go home, live with your mother, see your mom. Let's go to Orange County." I couldn't convince anybody to send us to Orange County, but um, you know, almost twenty years later, it looks like Scott's going to get a new trial, and wow. that uh, that to me at least, that's some vindication. I've had quite a bit of alcohol therapy since that verdict. <laughs> I, I will tell you, how do you survive that? I remember CNN. I've got it somewhere on my desk. Um, somebody made a snow globe out of it. CNN did a online uh, ver uh, kind of a uh, tally or vote or poll as to whether I had a career left after that. So I always, but luckily online, I had a career. They voted that I had a career. <laughs> oh, CNN approved, approved you to go on practicing yeah, law. That's exactly. nice of them. I could, I could go on practicing. Hey, welcome back, Mark. We want to thank you again for making time to be on the sidebar. We're recording this on Wednesday, November 3rd, after talking to Mark last week. Well, he's got such a prolific career that we couldn't get everything done in one recording. We had just finished talking about Scott Peterson and Michael Jackson cases before we were interrupted by a call from, uh, I'm not sure if it was the governor or the Supreme Court. I'm sure you'll fill us in. But today we'd like to talk uh, tackle, <laughs> no pun intended, Colin Kaepernick, Jesse Smollett, and some of the couple couple of the lesser known cases that you've been working on. Well, so to I kick, can say it's appropriate we do uh, Colin or start off yeah. with Colin. Today is his birthday. Oh, that's today. is that right? Yeah. And oh, how funny! Four years old, and um, uh, he's got a hit Netflix series out. Uh, my partner Ben was uh, involved in getting done, and. That's, uh, I think last time I looked, it was when I was going on Netflix, it was trending number six. So I know uh, it's going to be been getting a lot of attention. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's um, he's come a long way in the last uh, five years since he made kind of since he's, in my opinion, was ahead of the curve and um, was kind of the iconic uh, spirit behind a movement uh, that has taken hold and he's done he's one of the people often ask me about colin and what his um uh, what he's like and i will tell you that this young man who um i uh, i traveled to some parts of the country uh, to do depositions with with him and um, ben and he uh, have spent inordinate amount of time together and rewarding time together he's one of the smartest most thoughtful um uh and the philosophical uh young men i've ever uh, run across so as wow. a client as a client it really is kind of a um uh, a pleasure to have somebody like that as a client and he's got uh, wonderful taste in uh, women his uh, longtime um 
uh, I don't even want to characterize her, but Nessa, <laughs> who is a force in her own right, is uh, just wonderful. It's just, I can't say enough good things about it. Well, p- people, I think, have oversimplified the issue and they say, oh, oh, he got kicked out of the league because he started kneeling during the national anthem. But, but tell us, Tell us about like the legal aspects behind it. He filed a grievance in October of 2017 um, because he essentially was saying, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but that the league retaliated against him for voicing his own kind of First Amendment rights. What what was that all about, really, though? I will tell you that what um, the working theory that we had kind of came to pass based on uh, things that were developed. Um, I don't want to violate the protective order but much there was stuff that was leaked and um, some of the stuff that was leaked uh, kind of confirmed the idea that President Trump saw this as an issue that he could use to fire up his base sure and that was clearly um, I think evidence was fully developed during the discovery phase that that was the case. I mean, there were, I think, by one count, um, some sports writer had done that at least seven of the owners had contributed sums, enormous sums to his reelection campaign. Bob Kraft famously traveled on Air Force One with him. Jerry Jones um, has known him and and made phone calls or had phone calls with him. um, I could go down, uh, remember uh, the owner of, I believe, the Miami team, who also uh, is a real estate developer, held a fundraiser in the Hamptons. And um, uh, I think one of his holdings was Equinox, and there was a movement to boycott Equinox. So, I mean, they, yeah. the kind of intertwining of the owners along with what Trump calling it um, a winning issue for him. Right, uh, and it still st- resonates as uh, the 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 idea of um, keeping politics out of sports, which is so funny because um, uh, sports is is rife with politics on every level. It's just when you don't agree with it that it aggravates you. It's very much uh, reflective of the other kinds of uh, socio-political discourse that we have, where it's it's always I'm fighting for your right to free speech as long as I agree with your speech. Right, if I don't right. disagree with your speech, and it's too. Uh, thought-provoking, then I don't agree with you. Then, then shut up and dribble <laughs> at that point. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so I, I, I think he was, I, there's a reason that he is iconic, and there's a reason that this issue, uh, uh, I think, uh, sparked a world movement, an international movement. I mean, the, um, uh, he, of all the clients that I've been fortunate enough and blessed to represent, he, the, the ones when you actually walk down the street, I've said this before, and I'll, I remember coming out of um, a deposition at the NFL headquarters in New York and with Colin. And the outpouring of love, support, adulation, and gratitude um, is just astonishing. I sure. Mean, the, the, it's, it's a different character um, of reaction than say walking down the street or doing a press conference with Michael Jackson or sure. walking down the street. I'm uh, fortunate enough to walk down the street with Mike Tyson, and that's the adulation there is is because he's iconic in his world. But Colin, there is a veneer of gratitude and um, and emotion that people. Um, feel with him and a connection that people feel with him uh, that you just uh, that uh, that is real that's palpable and um, is moving you know when you look back at your career this seems like a bit of an anomaly it doesn't seem like the typical kind of case you would get involved in how 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 did you get involved why was it important for you I am I've always um, taken a position I mean anybody who does any criminal defense work understands um, what it is or has an affinity for standing up for the, uh, the, little, the little guy, as I always say. I don't mean the little guy, but just somebody who doesn't have 
the power or doesn't have the uh, is getting bullied. So right. there is that. Then there's also the idea that somehow, I mean, the criminal justice system seems to recycle uh, people in the what we now call marginalized communities. I uh, I used to um, label them differently, but the um, I remember there was a judge in the L.A. Superior Court 25 years ago, 30 years ago, who used to say that these possession of coke busts were the traffic ticket of L.A. Superior Court. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the, the history of the prosecution of cocaine offenses in California is very interesting because it was very draconian and um, they, they were felonies. And I remember the, uh, they used to have a thing called an IRS that they would put on files in the Superior Court, Ira Reiner Special, which meant mandatory <laughs> jail time for crack cocaine. Well, then something unique happened. There was a governor in the state of California, George Duke Medjin, and Mr. Duke Medjin, a famous Armenian, son of the Armenian community. <laughs> part of the um, tribe. And right, he was part of our tribe. And um, he came from Long Beach and he had run on both as attorney general and as governor on a law and order kind of platform back in the 80s and, and when whenever he was there and the the interesting thing was that in as soon as powder cocaine started to filter in for lack of a better term to affluent white communities where the sons or daughters of the um, people who may be in that uh, that constituency that is sure. not in the marginalized community. As soon as that happened, all of a sudden, guess what? California all of a sudden institutes diversion, which means you could you didn't have to have the felony on your record. The California then. Uh, moves to get the felony possession of cocaine charged as a misdemeanor so you wouldn't have a felony arrest on your record. All of a sudden, we became very progressive when it was infecting a different non-marginalized community. And when you see stuff like that, it tends to give you a certain jaded or cynical view of how the system, so to speak, works. So the long-winded answer to your question is, it was an issue that was right in our wheelhouse. It was something I felt like uh, uh, that made sense. It made a lot of sense for us to take on um, the NFL. And we, uh, I give credit to Ben who conceived kind of the, um, the approach uh, in terms of instead of going to court, use their own collective bargaining agreement yeah. and invoke the various clauses there, because that would get you a much faster resolution of the matter than languishing and fighting um, the overbur- in the overburdened federal courts. As we all know, you can you can get quickly disposed of in federal court because uh, to some degree the federal courts are overburdened. Yeah, well. Uh- Kind of a good segue into this next topic, not one to shy away from controversial cases. You then go on to represent uh, Jesse Smollett in 2019. Uh, For folks who don't remember, this is the famous uh, actor for the television series Empire, who told police that he was attacked outside of his apartment by two white men in ski masks who were using racial slurs, uh, homophobic slurs, and uh, saying this is MAGA country. Uh, for the a stand-in for the slogan of "Make America Great Again," again a, a, a Trump theme runs throughout. How did this case fall in your lap? This case was uh, there was a um, a person who will remain nameless um, <laughs> uh, who called me up and uh, asked me to please interview him, um, and uh, I did. And actually, right in this office where I'm sitting. Um, and I, um, I became genuinely convinced that he was getting a raw deal and that, um, that there was this assumption that when the two gentlemen who were arrested uh, came out and said he was in on it after being in custody for 47 hours, an hour short of when they would be released, um, I just thought that there was something hinky there. And we ended up... Um, convincing the uh, prosecutor. We had a wonderful local lawyer there 
um, who uh, helped out uh, tremendously, and the uh, prosecutor dismissed the case. Now, then, politically, what's happened since has really been an interesting kind of turn of events. He's now got a uh, one of my one of the lawyers in our office uh, represents him still, um, but there was an appointment. A, a retired judge came and agitated or advocated, whichever way you want to characterize it, uh, for a special prosecutor. They appointed a special prosecutor. I could get into the, all of the conspiracy theories there, but right. the special prosecutor then ends up indicting him again for the exact same offense, and that's set for trial later this month. And um, Tina in our office will end up uh, um, trying that case along. With That's going to trial this month. Yeah, goes to trial oh, wow. this month. I don't think a lot of people know that because there's been no. so much. I mean, it's been such a tortured uh, history. But yeah, and uh, the um, the office of or special counsels, I think what they call it, which harkens back to um, you know, I have a a thing about uh, offices of independent counsel or for higher prosecutors, which go back to the first segment we did and Ken Starr and Susan McDougal and mm -hmm. that, that the original witch hunt of, uh, Bill Clinton. That's why people, some of my friends never quite understand why I was so, um, adamant about in the Trump era about the office of independent counsel and it was because i always said if you're consistent and were anti the office of independent counsel during the whitewater investigation you must be consistent to find the same kinds of general flaws about uh, the kind of outside hired counsel who may or may not have an agenda just when it's the same thing we talk about with speech just when it's aimed at somebody you dislike doesn't make it any better than when it was aimed at somebody you like right um we focus a lot on the the criminal cases that you've handled mainly because those made the biggest splash uh uh in the news but your practice a lot of people a lot of folks don't understand your practice is primarily civil right well yeah i mean i would say that primarily the civil rights cases and the civil rights era uh, kinds of uh police death cases mm -hmm. are are what i spend an inordinate amount of time on i you know we had a um two to one decision very disappointing in the Tenth Circuit just last week. Just Which recent. Was, just recent. Uh, in, in fact, it, the dissent uh, starts off with 22 seconds. That's what he says. 22 seconds yeah. was the amount of time for the police officer to arrive and execute the the client. And as the dissent said, 200. The the family has waited 227 million seconds. For, to get in front of a jury and incredible uh, i've got that case i had a case that's still ongoing in the eighth circuit where a young man was uh, put a gun to his head he was suicidal um his mother called 911 the police officer arrived tells the kid put the gun down he starts to put the gun down they execute him and wow yeah in that case the uh, district court judge dismissed it right out of the gate we went to the Eighth Circuit. We got, a, at least on the um, uh, most of the claims, reversed in a unanimous published decision. Went back down to district court. I was scheduled to go to trial last month in Little Rock. Um, and about a month or six weeks before trial, the judge dismissed it again. And so now we just filed last week. We're back up in the Eighth Circuit asking that they reverse the second dismissal. And I've had some of the most unpleasant conversations, I'm not going to say which cases, but there is nothing because we're not talking attorney client. I'm not revealing attorney client. <laughs> okay. But it's really a very difficult conversation to have with the loved ones who want to to see some justice in these cases yeah. um, and to have uh, courts take 
that right away, the right to a jury trial away, and do it summarily and do it, um, I think, unfairly. And the uh, and you know, part of, along the lines of why we used to do a, a lot of um, uh, crim state court criminal work didn't pay well, but you know, where else could you get your as you and I have discussed, where else could you uh, get your training? Um, uh, the I don't know how lawyers do this if they don't have resources. I don't know how you, uh, you know, I don't know how you continue to just bang away, bang away uh, on all of these cases um, uh, and horrific factual situations, uh, and you just can't um, seem to. Uh, get traction in it until you get in front of a jury. I mean, yeah. I remember, I remember a case years ago we had in where we sued in um, the central district. We finally got in front of a jury, and when we did, the um, jurors, after they awarded millions of dollars, uh, said that uh, they uh, we had bifurcated the case. They gave punitives before it was even the punitive stage, and then they came out. They were on fire. And they said, "You know, if you would have had the DA up there, we would have uh, we would have uh, hit the DA for money as well." <laughs> but the if you're not going to have this, I mean, these are decades before there's been this kind of reckoning or awakening that we've had in America um, with police accountability. This judicially created doctrine of qualified immunity, which. And when I say judicially created, it was created out of thin air by the courts. And what this does is it insulates, for the most part, or lets the uh, them uh, the judge to say, oh, "What well, you know? I know, I know, I know bad behavior when I see it." Basically, a take right. off on the old Potter Stewart line for pornography, and it doesn't. It has the opposite effect. It, it, there's just there's no way that you can reconcile, I don't think, decisions across the country. It reminds me of the same problem that we had in the judiciary when we had sentencing guidelines that were mandatory. And you would yeah. still get you get wildly divergent um, uh, situations and you take away um, some of the judicial discretion. And you shouldn't. This is a situation where, if you meet certain requirements, you sh a jury should decide this. You, it seems to me that we're perilously close to having the Sixth Amendment um, repealed uh, for the right to a jury trial in police shooting cases, and that's not right. Why is your work as a lawyer important to you? What motivates you? Well, I, I, um, I think that if you can get some semblance of justice i'll tell you the the cases that really break your heart uh are the wrongful death cases where you've got a mother or a father um who has lost a loved one yeah and as a parent when you talk to them and it's win lose or draw there's no reward in it i mean yes you get uh, there's money in it, but there's there, money can be made a lot easier in a lot uh, 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 less stressful situations. And trying to quantify what a life is worth, is, I will never, you know, yeah. a child. I most parents would give their life so that their 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 kid could live, and so those are hard, and those are those are heartbreaking. And sometimes when you can get something positive done in those cases um that's that's rewarding that's enough reward in and of itself i yeah. uh, i will tell you that uh, it takes a little bit of your soul every time um you take one of those cases and you live with one of those cases or in, in my case when you get a setback or a judge dismisses it or you don't think you got justice in a case i that's i guess i something i'll never get over i mean i wow I, I believe in the justice system, but it has so many failings. You know, 10 years ago, Pat Harris, who was my then um, partner, um, co-wrote a book with me and, uh, the, called Mistrial. And I, I, I always used to say, and he, he eloquently captured it, I think, in the book, 
that, and we're not the original ones to come up with this. Anybody who's done this for decades will tell you the same thing. Um, the halls of justice are one of the last places that you're going to find justice. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's disconcerting. It doesn't, uh, I could go on and on and on about that. Um, and I'm, I'm not so sure that that other old adage about it's the it's not the best system, but uh, it's the best system devised so far. I'm not so sure about that either. So hate to end on such a cynical note. <laughs> well, Mark, it was a pleasure. Uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. We hope you'll join us in the future. Qu quickly tell us where can folks find out more about you or what you're up to now? Well, I, uh, I have a fun thing that I do, like you do, which is a podcast, Reasonable yep. Doubt. We've also- It's excellent. And, um, and we, uh, for some reason, we're in the comedy section. I think that's because Adam <laughs> Carolla is one of the funniest humans I've ever met. Um, and we're fortunate enough that uh, we're regularly top 20 in that section and regularly top 100 of all podcasts in the world. So go there or the other bite-sized nuggets, as I say, beyond a reasonable doubt, which are two updates uh, every week. And if you haven't listened to him, do yourself a favor and listen to him, folks. Um, I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. In the meantime, you can find our Sidebar podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for joining us at the Sidebar. Sidebar.